Our Father, as we gather today to study your word, we do ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would give us clarity of mind, would give us illumination into the text, that we may understand it. And Lord, we need more than that. We need more than understanding. We need your power and your conviction to obey. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would do your work, that it would transform us into the likeness of Christ, that it would grow us in our love for you and our obedience unto you for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be continuing our study of Genesis, starting in chapter 12, going through the first few verses of chapter 13. If you're not familiar with the term expository preaching, that is the type of preaching that I practice, where we kind of systematically go through a book study. You know, we'll go through a book systematically, verse by verse, covering all sorts of things. And there are a lot of reasons that I love expository preaching. Number one is I don't get to just cherry pick my favorite verses and my favorite topics and things that I want to talk about. Instead, I have to be faithful to what God's Word says. And that's, that's the other thing. It forces me, if I don't understand what God's Word says, if I don't understand what uh, a text means, it forces me to dig in and start studying so that I can understand it and so that I can preach on it. But there's an even perhaps more important reason to practice expository preaching than that. And that is that there is a tendency, there is a possi- the possibility that a pastor can go around playing whack-a-mole, if you're familiar with that game, uh, in terms of the issues that the people are facing. Because the more people you have, the more problems people have. People are facing all kinds of different circumstances in their lives. And so through expository preaching, you're actually preparing, I'm preparing you guys for things that I don't know that you're going to face, things that I don't even know that you're going through. And so when you get to those times, when you get to difficult times, difficult circumstances, you've already heard what the Bible has to say about it. Because I haven't just been picking one topic here, another topic there. Instead, it gives us a holistic approach to all that Scripture teaches us, to the entire counsel of God. And one of the things that I guarantee you are going to go through or maybe you're going through, or maybe you've gone through and you're going to go through again, is trials. Your faith will be tested. And it is impossible for me to prepare you holistically if I'm just picking and choosing a verse here and a verse there. Instead, we study the whole Word of God because the whole Word of God ministers to us. We looked at the nature of biblical saving faith last week as we saw six qualities of biblical legitimate faith reflected in the life of Abram in just a few short verses, six verses we covered last week. You might recall from verse 9 in chapter 12, it says, Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. The Negev is the Southlands. That is a quality of saving faith, that part of biblical faith involves a journey. And a journey isn't a journey without progress. A journey isn't a journey without growth. And so if you are legitimately a Christian, if you have placed saving faith, legitimate biblical saving faith in Christ, there will be a journey. There will be progress. 
But what happens if we don't want to play along? What happens if we don't want to go along with what growth God might want to instill in us? Well, one of the tools that God has at his disposal for causing us to grow in our faith is testing, affliction, hardships, trials. God does not want you to have a shallow faith that cannot endure hardships or trials or testing. In fact, Jesus warned us in the parable of the soils. He, he warned us against the danger of having a shallow faith. He talked about the, the, when he's talking about the soils, he tells us that there will be some who believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. They fall away in times of affliction. They fall away in times of, of hardship. And here's the principle that's kind of the overarching theme of our passage today. A faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. A faith that cannot endure hardships is not one that you can rely on. In the short time that we've been studying the life of Abram, we've only covered, what, nine verses in in chapter 12, and that's been really the start of Abram's story. But in this short time, we've seen that God has elected Abram. He elected Abram. He appeared to Abram while Abram was still serving pagan gods in Ur of the Chaldeans. And when he appeared to him, he called him to the land of Canaan. And Abram obeyed, but he obeyed imperfectly. He was told to leave his father's household and to leave his his family, and instead his nephew and his dad tag along, which results in a layover in the land of Haran. But he does eventually make complete the 800-mile journey to the land of Canaan. And when he gets there, he goes to the religious center, which is found in Shechem, where he worshiped God in the presence of the pagans. He, He built an altar right in their presence, and he worshiped God. And again, God appeared to him, and he made a very short, very succinct, very clear promise to him. He promised that he would give this land, the land of Canaan, to Abram's offspring. Not to Abram, but to his offspring. And so Abram ends up going up to the hill country between Bethel and Ai, where he sets up his tents, keeping himself available to God and building yet another altar to worship God. And if you look at this, if you just look at these first nine verses, what it looks like on the surface is that it's just one victorious moment after another, after another. And he's doing all these great things, and he's accomplishing all these great things by God's power. And it just looks like one victory after another, after another. But a faith that can't be tested, can't be trusted. A faith that can't endure hardship, a faith that can't endure temptation or affliction or adversity, a faith that can't endure coming close to being absolutely shipwrecked, cannot be trusted. In times of testing, and if you're a Christian long enough, you will be tested. Trust me, you will be tested. In times of testing, it's good to remember that even Abram, even the guy who's remembered as the father of the faith, this guy who's so highly esteemed by even Paul, even Abram had his faith tested. Even Abram had to go through trials and temptation. If you remember Peter, 
compared our trials to the testing and the purification of gold at like, like it's in the, the heat of a furnace, the impurities being purged from it. Biblical saving faith will be tested. But by the grace of God, and by the grace of God alone, it will endure, it will persist, and it will withstand and weather every trial and hardship. So we start out with verse 10. And this verse is, there's so much. I almost wrote the whole sermon just on verse 10. Verse 10 says this, Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Note where this lies. Note note where where this, this falls in the text. It's immediately after all these victorious moments in Abram's life, in the, the early stages of his walk by the Lord. It's both comforting and perhaps disturbing at the same time to realize that God knows exactly what kind of faith you have. The disturbing part is He knows what kind of faith you don't have. And the great news is that this sovereign, omnipotent, all-knowing God knows what it will take to get you from point A to point B. He knows what it will take to grow you in your faith. Now, if you consider what Abram and Sarai have have been through so far, this 800-mile journey with Abram as a 75-year-old man, they may have been expecting that when they got to the land of Canaan, they'd be able to just settle down and coast, settle down and just, just be comfortable for the rest of their lives. But God protects them against growing stagnant in their faith. He doesn't want Abram to be stagnant in his faith. He doesn't want you to be stagnant in your faith either, by the way. And so he he doesn't let them become comfortable with their situation. He doesn't allow them to to enjoy the luxury of just sitting back and, and coasting. They may have thought that when they got to this land of Canaan, there would be more food than they could possibly eat, that there would be more resources for them to use than they could ever possibly exhaust, that there would be more earthly blessings than they had ever experienced in their lives before. But instead, what we read immediately is that there's a famine in the land. God allows a severe famine to fall upon the land. Now, if you think about it, we have no reason whatsoever to to even begin to think that Abram may have experienced severe famines when he was worshiping pagan gods in Ur of the Chaldeans, or when he had the layover in the land of Haran. But now, he's following God. Now, God is, is leading him. He's led him to this place, and He's got a very serious predicament in front of him. There's no food. There's a shortage of food. Now that he's in the land that God brought him to, there's not enough for everybody to eat. And let's remember that this isn't just Abram. He's got Sarai. He's got his wife. He's got his nephew, Lot. He's got 
this whole entourage of people who joined him in the land of Haran, which we saw last week, probably indicated that these are people who Abraham uh, told about his encounter with God, and they said, well, we want to go with you to this promised land. We want to meet this God too. So all these people are with him, and when they get there, there's a shortage of food. Perhaps these people who joined the entourage are like sprouts in rocky soil, which seem to show signs of life. They, they sprout up, but the roots don't go deep. And so when the heat of the sun beats down, they wither up and they die. And these people likewise appear to melt like wax in a toaster oven as soon as a predicament crosses their way because these people apparently drop out of the picture completely from this point on. So maybe the question to be asking is, why would God allow a famine to come upon the land where Abram would have expected to find blessing? First of all, it starts with having a theology that includes and has kind of at the center of it, God's sovereignty. And when we say that God is sovereign, what we mean is that God either causes or allows everything that happens think about it for a second. We're talking about an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, sovereign God. Is there anything, given those characteristics, that He cannot stop? Of course not. Now, on, on this side of glory, we don't get to see all the things that God hasn't allowed, but it starts with understanding that God is sovereign over everything, including your trials including any affliction, any, any hardship that you may go through. God is sovereign over it. The next thing we need to understand is that God-ordained affliction is a blessing. God-ordained affliction is a blessing. God either caused it or allowed it, whatever it may be, for the same reason in Abraham's life that would apply to our lives, and that would be he, he allows hardships and testing and trials and, and affliction in order to purify and refine and strengthen the faith of his people. And that's what happens in the valley of the shadow of death. And it's something that doesn't happen so well on the mountaintops of life where everything is just grand and everything is happy. We don't tend in our flesh, because of our flesh, we don't tend to draw close to God when we're comfortable or when we're at the mountain peaks of life. God ordains affliction to test and to refine your faith. And there's a pattern that you actually find throughout Scripture that we see here. It's, it's throughout Scripture. It happens to almost all the main characters in Scripture, and it looks like this. There's a moment of victory or a moment of triumph that is immediately followed by some type of adversity or some type of, of suffering or some type of testing or oppression. We see this in the history of Israel. The book of Judges, they, 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 come, they draw near to God, and then they, they quickly fall away when they're tested, and then they, they, God does something, He sends another judge, and, and they draw close to God again because they're coming under enslavement, and God comes in again to, to save them. And so it goes back and forth and back and forth. It happened in David's life, you'll remember. He has all these, these great moments of victory on the battlefield. He's, he's doing everything that a, a godly leader should until he gets tested and fails miserably. 
We see it in the life of Christ. He gets baptized in the Jordan River. People are starting to take an interest in him. God calls down from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And in the midst of this, this popularity and, and, and this recognition by the Father, the Holy Spirit leads him out to be tested in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. So we see it in the life of Israel and David in the life of Christ. We see it in the apostles. And that's because God has a sovereign purpose in our suffering. God has a, a sovereign purpose in our hardships. Could God stop any trial or hardship from coming your way? Yeah. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's wise. He's good. He could prevent trials and hardships from coming our way. But a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And some people in response to this type of realization, and I've, I actually know pastors who have had people leave their church when they realized that, that God would ordain hardships and testing and, and trial. Because they think, well, you know, I, I was told that God loves me and, and has a wonderful plan for my life. Yes. 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 God loves his children, and he does cause all things to work together for his glory and for their good. But what that looks like isn't always what we're expecting. And our good means our growth in, in Christ's likeness, Romans 8.29. And that almost invariably involves a painful and difficult process of refinement in which our faith is grown in which God takes our faith where it is and He brings us across a certain set of circumstances in which our faith will be enlarged, in which the boundaries of our faith will be expanded. But know this, and remember this when you do go through trials, that while you will go through trials and while your faith will be tested through adversity, through affliction, through hardships, through storms of life, you don't face those periods of testing and hardship by yourself. God in His sovereign wisdom has ordained that the church would be available, that the church body would aid you and, and, and comfort you and minister to you in times of trouble. So I guess maybe one of the first things we need to understand is if you go through this, don't go alone. Don't, don't pull away from the church, and that's kind of our tendency, because as Americans especially, I think, we tend to be very independent people. As Westerners, we tend to be very independent, autonomous people, and we don't want people to, to go out of their way to help us. We don't want to be a burden to anybody else. No, the purpose of the body of Christ is to be with you in the storm. More importantly than that, God Himself is with you. God Himself is beside you in the fiercest storms, in the darkest nights, and in the most perilous pitfalls of your journey. God will sustain you. God will sustain your faith. God is with Abram in this famine. God hasn't left him. He's with him. Abram has accomplished some amazing things in a very, very short amount of time. Not because Abram was such a great person, but because 
God is so great. And God was with him. And God was empowering one victory after another in his journey up to this point. Here's the danger that we face, though. And this is why we see it time after time after time in the Bible. There's this tendency that we have after a God-empowered moment of victory in which we start getting a little overconfident. We start thinking, oh, well, you know, God kind of helped me there, but that was at least partially me, right? You know, I, I did my part there, and, and God did His part. So, so what happens is we get a little bit overconfident, and before you know it, we start depending on our knowledge. We start depending on our understanding of things. We start depending on our wisdom and seeking our own ideas about how to deal with adversity rather than trusting in God, depending on God. And God doesn't want you to become overconfident. He doesn't want me to become overconfident. He doesn't want Abram to become proud or overconfident in his own understanding. And so Abram's faith gets tested. And suddenly, Abram's faith is revealed to be extremely fragile. It's like dropping an egg on the hard floor of the kitchen. His faith is very, very fragile. Instead of trusting in God in the famine, instead of calling out to God in the famine, Abram takes matters into his own hands. And what does he do? So Abram went down to Egypt. He goes down to Egypt. Now, in and of itself, there's nothing necessarily wrong with going down to Egypt. I mean, sometimes God actually tells His people, as we'll see later on in Genesis, sometimes God tells His people, There's a famine. Go down to Egypt. But there's no indication here that Abram sought God's help, that Abram sought God's will, that Abram sought God's counsel about the famine. No, Abram goes down there. He goes down to Egypt on his own, by his own choosing. He tries to take matters into his own hands. Rather than crying out to the God who could rain down manna, For the Israelites, when there wasn't enough food in the wilderness, he takes matters into his own hands. Instead of crying out to God for help, he runs to the world for refuge. Keep in mind that Egypt, especially in Genesis, represents the the world. It represents Babylon, the evil empire that stands rebellious against God. And instead of running to God for help, he runs to the world for refuge. The principle here is this. When you're tested, and you will be tested, when you're tested, don't start asking, what can I do to get out of this? Don't start asking, how do I get out of this? The question to be asking is, what can I get out of this? Not how can I get out of this? What can I get out of this? Abram is asking the wrong question. He's thinking, how can I get out of this famine? And so he takes matters into his own hands. James writes this, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. He says this, this is very important. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let's just stop there for a second. Isn't that weird? Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it joy. That's, that's so counterintuitive. That's so 
opposite what our nature is. He's, and and it, he doesn't even say, you know, when, when, it's, when it's an easy trial or when it's something that's light or when it's something that you know that you'll be able to get through on, you know, in one piece. No, he just says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? He says in verse 3, for because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Verse 4, and let, here's the imperative, here's, here's the instruction in light of this truth, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is just so contrary to our way of thinking. That's one of the ways I know that this book comes from God, not from man. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. And and note the certainty, by the way, in this passage. He doesn't say, if you encounter trials, if you encounter trusting. We we wish that he would have, right? We wish he would have left some room in there to say, well, that's not going to apply to me. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is certain And so, when you're tested, don't ask, how can I get out of this? Ask, what can I get out of this? Because the truth is, God is growing you in every single situation, in every single circumstance that you face in life. Every single one. God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Romans 8.28 God is growing you. God is using your situation, your circumstances, to grow you. So ask the right question. How is God trying to grow me in whatever your affliction or hardship or joyful season might be? That is not what Abram did, by the way. Abram does not seek. He doesn't ask the right question. He, handed, uh, he, he headed down to Egypt. He takes matters into his own hands. He knows that there is going to be the chance, a very strong chance, of there being trouble down there. And so he comes up with a plan. Look at verses uh, 11 to 16 with me. It says, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, and for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, Male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So Abram, before they get to the border, he says, wait a minute, I I know Egypt's reputation. I, I know Pharaoh's reputation. He takes beautiful women for his wife and Sarah, you are beautiful. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna tell a half truth because she is his half sister, by the way. We'll find that out later on down the line. You, you just say that you're my sister, and that way, Pharaoh will deal well with me. And as a result, Sarai, you know, that's the, that's the story that they stick with. 
And as a result, Abram is actually blessed by Pharaoh. Pharaoh gives him all this stuff that we see in verse 16. He's he's got everything that he could possibly need by running to the world for refuge. One of the reasons I am confident, highly confident, that the Bible is true in everything that it says, in everything that it teaches, is the fact that when you encounter a hero of the faith, like Abram, they aren't portrayed, they aren't painted up to be perfect. They aren't painted up to be superheroes. They aren't painted up to be sinless or even altogether trustworthy. Abram proves himself to be less than trustworthy here. God, throughout Scripture, God is the only hero. Only Christ is sinless. Only Christ is perfect. God is the only perfect hero in the book, in the Bible. But how will God accomplish His sovereign purposes through sinful man? The same way that He does throughout Scripture from beginning to end. God's promises to Abram stand. God's promises to Abram aren't nullified by the fact that Abram is a very flawed, imperfect, sinful, manipulative, untrustworthy person. If the fulfillment of God's sovereign plans and purposes was contingent or or conditional upon man's faithfulness unto Him, man, let's just eat, drink, and be merry. Let's have pizza and party. You know, We, We would all be in so much trouble if the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes relied on us. His plans would be thwarted. But the Scripture attests very clearly that His plans and purposes cannot be thwarted. But if it was contingent upon us, yeah, His promises would be nullified. In God's infinite wisdom, and in His sovereignty, and in His boundless power, God always knows how to advance His purposes. He has ordained it all from eternity. And even when we are faithless, even when we stumble, even when we sin, God is always faithful. His plans will go forward. His purposes will be fulfilled. Here in this passage, Abram stops trusting God. And that's always what happens when we sin, by the way. For a moment, we, we, if it's just for a moment, we, we, we look away from the cross. We look away from God and we start trusting in ourselves. And here in this passage, Abram stops trusting. And what does he start doing? He starts plotting to sin. He starts conspiring to sin with his wife. He brings his wife into his sin. And let's just call it what it is. What Abram does here is despicable. This is an absolutely deplorable act on Abram's behalf. And I'm not even sure that a husband could possibly be more selfish, more self-serving, more disrespectful to his wife than this. And it started with him not seeking God's counsel and not trusting in what God would do for him. And the principle that we see here is this. 
When you stop seeking God's Word. When you stop filling your mind with what God would say, what God's Word says, you will stop remembering it. You will stop looking to it. You will stop trusting it. You will stop living it. It starts with not seeking it, with getting to the point where you feel like you're good on your own. You don't need to expose yourself to the Word of God as regularly as you used to because now you know it all. When you stop seeking God's Word, you stop trusting God's Word. When you stop trusting God's Word, you stop living God's Word. When you stop living God's Word, you are being controlled by the impulses of your flesh. You're being controlled by sinful desires and sinful impulses instead. Before you know it, you, you, you just, it's so easy. You're so, and, you, and before you know it, you're just so far away from God. Once you stop filling your heart and mind with Scripture, suddenly you start trusting in all these other things that are negotiable. You start trusting in your feelings. I want to do this because it feels good or it feels right. Or, or you start trusting in your emotions. This will make me happy. I want to do this because this will, this will give me a sense of joy, a momentary sense of joy. You start trusting in the counsel of ungodly people, people in the culture who are around you and telling you, you deserved the right to be able to do this or that, regardless of what God's Word might say about it. And all of a sudden, all these things, your emotions, your, your, your counsel from the culture, these things are all leading you down a very ungodly path. Beware, by the way. Beware of this temptation to plot sin. Let's not pretend. We've all done it. We, We all have done it. But beware of the temptation to plot sin in your heart. Because that's where it starts. That's where all sin starts. It starts in your heart And it's only a very short distance, a very short trip from your heart to your hands. It's a very short distance between being in the place where you're plotting your sin and then living it out. And that's why Jesus would say, you're guilty of murder if if you're even angry enough in your your heart to, 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 to kill him. It doesn't matter if you do it physically. It's what's in your heart. It's why he would say, you commit adultery when you look at a woman lustfully. You don't even have to do it physically. If you're looking at a woman lustfully, you are guilty. So beware when you start plotting things in your heart. Run from those things. Run from those things. Stepping outside of God's will starts in the heart. It starts with desiring something other than what God would have for you. Desiring earthly, carnal pleasures rather than heavenly treasures. Friends, our faith is so weak. Our faith is so fragile. We don't even see how weak and fragile it is. All it takes is is one little tap on the bottom of the beaker and all of a sudden all this junk in our lives rises to the surface. Just one little flick of adversity. But God is working to strengthen, to fortify our faith, to give it steadfastness, to use James's word. And God's purposes advance despite our weaknesses. God's purposes, the fulfillment of God's purposes depend on God's faithfulness. Now you might ask, well, what if I just decide I'm not going to participate? What if I decide I'm not going to go along with what God wants to do in my life? 
That's a good question, but it starts with a wrong supposition, a wrong idea. It starts with the idea that it's possible for you to just indefinitely do your own thing and that God will just let you do your own thing. Part of the new nature, part of receiving the heart of flesh being re- and that replacing the heart of stone is that your desires and your affections are all changed and that you start desiring the things that God values. You start valuing what God values. You start loving what God loves. You start hating what God hates. And so you have to understand that, first of all. But secondly, you would think that an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign God would know what it takes to get the resistant child to comply, to go along with His plans. And often, that means taking a trip out behind the divine woodshed. It means discipline. And we should remember what the author of Hebrews says. He says that, The Lord scourges. He disciplines every son and daughter whom He receives. Every child of God is disciplined. Why? Because that's us. Because we are resistant to what God wants to do with our faith. We are resistant to our faith growing. But God, in His infinite wisdom, knows what it will take to prod us along. To just give us a little poke. No, not to condemn us, but to discipline us in order that we would learn to comply out of love out of the same type of love that a that a father or mother might have when their daughter runs out into a busy intersection what would you do you'd grab them and you'd discipline them that's what a good father or good mother does god's the same way so abram has made this journey down to egypt he's come up with this this brilliant, uh, yeah, I'm facetious, being facetious, this brilliant idea where he's going to lie and scheme and cheat and, and, and they're going to live because of this lie. And as a result, Pharaoh gives them all this stuff. Let's continue reading uh, verses 17 to 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It wasn't very many verses ago. Just the beginning of the chapter. The chapter starts with God making this promise to Abram that he would bless all the families of the earth through him. And that is the unique and very special uh, purpose that God had in Abram's life. But by the end of the chapter, we can see that Abram's off to a really bad start. He's not off to a, a good start at all. Instead of being a blessing, what happens? His sin causes his presence to be a curse. It, it brings God's judgment upon the household of Pharaoh. And so plagues are sent by God upon Pharaoh's house. And apparently, it's, it's severe enough, it's bad enough, that it's completely obvious that this is what's going on. That this, that this is the lie that was perpetrated. That, or perhaps it's more likely that Sarai sees what's going on 
And so she finally breaks down and she confesses Abram's and her sin to Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh responds by calling Abram before him. And that had to be terrifying for Abram. He, he thought, whoa, uh, this is not what I thought was going to happen, right? And he gets grilled for his lie. But we should note that Pharaoh is far more graceful, far more merciful to Abram than we may have been expecting. Keep in mind, Moses wrote this for the Israelites who had uh, escaped the Pharaoh, right? They had escaped Egypt and they saw how hard-hearted Pharaoh was. And so they had to be thinking, wow, God really gave his favor to Abram here by softening Pharaoh's heart. And so Pharaoh doesn't sentence Abram to die. He doesn't sentence Abram to a life of hard labor. He doesn't take everything that he had given to Abram back from him. He basically just says, take your wife, take your stuff, and get out of here. When I was in Las Vegas, that's called 86ing somebody. Just take your wife and your stuff and leave. Trials and testing have a very unique way of showing us exactly what we're made of, exactly how strong our faith is not. They have a way of showing us how fragile we actually are. Afflictions teach us. Testings teach us not to trust in our own ideas or our own understanding. That's the lesson Abram is starting to learn here. But even then, he doesn't learn it perfectly. We're going to see that he basically does the same thing again further down the line. So when you come to the storms of life, the lesson is don't try to lean on your own understanding. Don't try to be wise by your own understanding lest you fall. Trials can result in in one of two things, depending on how you respond to them. And that's why James has to put the imperative, the the, the comment in there. Let these things produce steadfastness in you. Because they can do one of two things. They can make you better, they can make you better, or they can make you bitter. They can make you better, or they can make you bitter. They can draw you close to God, or they can drive this enormous emotional, relational wedge between you and God. Been there and done that. They can teach you to trust more fully in God or they can teach you to trust in yourself. And so what makes the difference between being better or being bitter? I would say it starts with walking humbly before the Lord. It starts with walking humbly before the Lord. Having this this theology of God's sovereignty. Understanding that whatever affliction you're going through, whatever your testing is, whatever your trial is, God is sovereign over it, and God is with you in it. And if you keep that in mind, if you keep that at the front of your mind, these things will strengthen your faith. But if you start getting bitter, and you start thinking, why would God do this to me? Because you don't have a a, a theology that understands that God is causing everything to work for His glory and for your good. If you don't have that, it will drive that emotional, relational wedge between you and God. God is sovereign over whatever your circumstances are. 
Whatever you've gone through, whatever you're going through, whatever you will go through, God is sovereign over it. He has either caused it or He has allowed it. Either way, He is sovereign over it. So walk humbly before the Lord in the fury of the storm. Draw near to the Lord in faith when it feels like everything is just out of control. Because it is. It's out of your control. But it's never out of God's control. Because if you don't keep this type of perspective, if you don't walk humbly, if you don't draw near to the Lord, what happens is the enemy comes in and he starts sifting you like wheat. And God lets him do it because eventually you will come around. That's part of discipline. If you are a true child of God, your faith will come around. God knows how to break you. God knows how to teach you to trust in Him. But the principle under all this is that the road of self-reliance leads far away from God. The road of self-reliance leads further away from God than any child of God should ever want to go. And Abram ran that road to the very end. He's been there. He's done that. So you don't need to try it for yourself. You can live, you can learn vicariously through Abram's failures and the lessons that he's had to learn, the trials that he's had to endure. He's run the road of self-reliance, and he found it to be a dark place. He found it to be a distressing place. He found it to be a hopeless place. And maybe you find yourself going down that road today, the road of self-reliance where you are just leaning on your own understanding and you don't care what God says. But if you, look, if you look to the cross, you'll see that if you are on that road, you are being led away from the cross. You are being led away from God. Maybe you have run to Egypt for refuge. Maybe you are somewhere between Canaan and Egypt. What should you do? What should you do if that's where you find your pla- yourself, if that's the place you find yourself to be, or when you find yourself? You do the only thing you should do, and that's what Abram did. You turn around. You turn around and you go back. Let's look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. It says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, and silver, and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. We saw last week what it means to call on the name of the Lord. It means to repent. It means to believe. It means to confess. You believe in the promises of God. You believe what God has done for you. Abram goes back to the place that God had first led him to. He goes back to square one, you might say. When your faith fails you, this is what you do. You go back to square one. 
which is so unlike the way that the world works. Think about it. Let's say somebody starts a, a corporate job in a mail room someplace and they work themselves up until they're, they're head of a corporation where they have a, a complete moral failure and they, they, they totally fall apart up there. What do they do? Well, they don't want to start back down at the mail room again. No, instead they're fired. No, what you do is you go back to square one. You repent and you believe the gospel just like you did when you first came to faith. The same way. You find yourself a million miles away from God, you just turn back, you repent, and you believe the Gospel. By faith, you remember and you trust that Jesus took your sin upon Himself on the cross as He was on Calvary, where He bore the wrath of God the Father as your substitute in your place the wrath that you deserved, He took it upon Himself. You believe that He was your substitute and that He washed you clean of sin. You believe that His death was sufficient to cover every single one of your sins, every single one of your failures, all of your acts of faithlessness. You confess your sin. And let's remember that confessing doesn't mean admitting. It's not the same as admitting. To admit something, you you can rejoice in what you've done and admit that you did it. No, to confess means to say the same word. The the Greek word is homo logeo, which means same word, which basically means you agree with what God's word says about your sin. You agree, you, you remember and you agree with the fact that your sin has earned you nothing but God's wrath. You remember and you and you agree that what you did, that your sin is awful and heinous. But you also remember the promise that if we confess our sins, Christ is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Abram does that. He goes back to square one. He calls on the name of the Lord, just like he did at the beginning. The real lesson in all of this is to abide in the will of God by seeking the will of God in His Word. If only Abram had sought God's help at the beginning. If only Abram had cried out to God at the beginning. But God could have provided for him. God, God would have provided for him. But through his failures, through, through his testing, he learned an important lesson a lesson that I've learned, a lesson that you've probably learned if you've gone through trials and testings, and that is that God's grace is greater than you ever realized. And the time that you realize that most is when you have sinned, when you have failed, when you have been completely unfaithful, and were it not for God's grace, you would have fallen away in a second. And when you're there, When you confess, when you come back, you realize that God's grace is so great. It's so much greater, so much more abundant than you ever would have realized had your faith not been tested. Even when our faith fails toward God, His faithfulness to us, to His children, endures. And His patient faithfulness unto us should cause you to be eager to repent, to confess, to believe, and to be restored, to be renewed, to be washed clean, 
to have your sin taken from you as far as east is from the west. God has a sovereign purpose in every situation, in every circumstance, in every trial, in every hardship, in everything that you go through. So do not allow trials to break your faith, to shipwreck your faith. Instead, as James said, let it produce steadfastness. Because God's purpose in your testing is to prepare you. The same way that a runner tests himself by going up steep hills in order to prepare himself or herself for running up hills that aren't quite as steep. Your trials prepare you both for glory and for other trials that you may have to encounter further down the road. They, they purify you. They, they purge the iniquity, the, 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 the sinful desires from you. And thus, ultimately, your tests and your trials and your afflictions are a God-ordained blessing toward you because God is using them to cause you to grow in your faith and for you to grow in the likeness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you that morning by morning, new mercies we see. We thank you, Lord, that you do not abandon us, that you do not forsake us in spite of our weakness. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. God, in the silence of our hearts, we confess to you that we are sinners, that we, that we would fall away from you so fast if it were not for your incredible grace. So we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your patience with us. And we pray, Lord, that we may learn to see your sovereignty and your purposes in our trials and that our faith would be grown, that we would become steadfast, more steadfast in our faith with the understanding that there's nothing that can come against us that you have not either caused or allowed. So thank you, Lord, for the trials. Thank you, Lord, for testing us in order that we may more, in order that we may trust more fully in you. Keep our eyes, Lord, fixed on the cross for the glory of This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths 
in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.